0: I don't have any bifocals or trifocals, but I can speak to the idea of focus. Have you um, ever seen someone in a cage with a lion, you know, a lion tamer? Anybody ever seen a lion? lion tamer on TV? Anyone ever seen one? Um, I don't know if you know this. I looked this up, and as far as I can tell, this is actually true. Um, the reason they use a chair, the reason they use a chair or a stool with, with multiple legs is because the, the three or four legs on the stool almost paralyzes the lion, and it doesn't know which leg to focus on, which leg is going to be the one that's going to attack the lion, so it just kind of paralyzes it in fear because it can't concentrate on all four legs at the same time. So, the, so using that chair um, is something that totally distracts the lion and, and uh, puts it uh, you know, in a, in a safe state. Now, I don't think it's ever safe to be in a cage with a lion, but uh, some people do. But... Um, just like you know, just like Brian Regan in that, in that clip, you know, we can't possibly imagine needing trifocals, right? We can't possibly needing that kind of range to cover, cover three things because how could you possibly focus on the right thing at the right time and the, and the risk of, of being unfocused when you needed to be focused is a very real thing. And then uh, thinking about the line and being, and being distracted, I want to ask this question before we go into, into our next discussion time. What happens when you have too many things to focus on? What happens when you have too many things to focus on? What happens when you get distracted? What happens when there's so much in front of you that you don't know, know what to look at? Or when there are four things in front of you and you don't know which one is the most important? And have you ever been in a situation where there were so many things to focus on that you were paralyzed because you didn't know where to begin. There were maybe so many things out in front of you, so many things that you could do or could be doing or, or maybe should be doing, but you didn't know where to begin because there were just too many of them. So that's the question we're gonna ask. And if you don't mind, let's turn into our groups and let's begin talking about that question. Well, if you did, if you did your daily guide last week, then this verse should look familiar to you. I'd be encouraging you once again to, to make sure to be spending time throughout the week. Going through that daily guide and uh, after Monday, Monday still focuses on applying what we talk about on Sunday, but then Tuesday through the rest of the week, all talks about getting ready for the week to come and, and being ready for, uh, for what God wants to share with us and that following Sunday, so I'd encourage you to be going through that and working on memorizing your verses. There was an article in last week's guide to kind of give you a tool to memorize it, so you don't have to cram all the verses, but you can just slowly over time absorb them uh, with that method. So I'd encourage you to be doing that. And then if you miss a week, um, make sure you check out the podcast and go go get caught up and uh, and listen to the podcast online. And I just want to say, um, I know I know you would expect me to say this. Um, because that's my job, but it's really important to have everyone here as often as possible. I would say every week, because, I mean, why wouldn't you want to be here every week? I just can't imagine a reason why you want, wouldn't want to be at church on a Sunday. But… but um, being here, especially as we're going through these modules, you know they all, they all really build on one another. They all build from the beginning into the next one, and so, so missing a week kind of puts you behind a little bit, and uh, might, might, uh, some things might not make sense. So at the very least, maybe go check out the podcast, but if you can, make it a priority to be here on Sunday as we go through these modules. If you uh, have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1 for most of our time this morning, so you can uh, go there, pull it up on your phone if you don't have it. I just want to read through the creation story. Now, um, there's a lot of debate about about creation story and all of the science and all of that stuff. We're not going to get into that for now. Um, if you have questions on that, you can talk to Kenan <laughs> or, or Jim. They have, they have all those answers for you. But... Um, for now, we're just, we're just going to believe the Bible when it says that God created the earth. So, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Have you ever tried to just create light? Like, let there be light. How freaky would that have been if, like... Light came shooting out of my hand, right? We obviously can't create light, so even that is amazing. And I hope as we go through this, you'll just see the amazing God that, that we worship, that we celebrate, that we serve. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said... Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So, to separate the water below from the water above, the clouds and the the sea. So, God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, the clouds and the sky. And it was so God God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let let the dry ground appear. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 14, God said, "'Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky "'to separate the day from night, "'and let them serve as signs to mark seasons "'and days and years, "'and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky "'to give light on the earth. "'And it was so. "'God made two great lights, "'the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, "'and the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. "'He also made the stars. "'God set them in the expanse of the sky.' To give the light, to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let water team with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing and moving thing with which the water teams according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw. That it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. It's interesting that he didn't say to fill the air with birds. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said... I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and to all all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The sixth day. Let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your creation. We thank You that, that all around us we see signs, we see evidence of Your existence and the design that You put in place for this planet, for, for this universe, and for our lives. Father, open our minds to hear from You this morning and speak to us in ways that only You can do. Speak uh, in spite of my incompetencies and my shortcomings, and speak to every one of us this morning through your Spirit in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. Throughout the whole first chapter, we see the story of God creating everything. God created, God created light and darkness, and then God uh, made the separated the expanse from the sea, and that was the second day, and then. The third day he he filled the water or put the water in its place and he separated the land from the dry ground and then the land started producing vegetation and then he says it's good. And and God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky, and he talks about all the stars and all the sun and the moon and all that stuff. And then he says it's good. And throughout the entire first chapter of Genesis, we see God talking about all the stuff that he's making, talking about the animals and the livestock and the birds and, and the fish in the sea, and he's talking about it about how it was good. He saw it and it was good. But then on, on the sixth day, the sixth day, God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he made us. Mankind is made in the image of God. And then at the end of this one, he says it was very good. It's not just good, all of creation is good, but, but it is very good. Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock over all the earth and all the creatures that move along the ground. So I don't know, I don't know where you are, but for me, when I, one of the reasons I absolutely love the Northwest is when I, when I drive to work. And when I drive home from work, I, I'm astounded by this beauty that I see around me. I see I see trees that are that are tall that, that could kill me if they fell. Um, I see trees that if the branch fell out of the tree, it could kill me. These huge majestic trees that we have, all around us I see this amazing Columbia River the, the the river that has the most water in it on the face of the planet by the amount the volume of water in the Columbia River outnumbers all of the other rivers in the world including the Mississippi and the Nile they are longer but they don 't have as much water in it as the Columbia River we have this amazing river that, that just that just flows right by us every day we have mountains around us we can see the active work of creation in Mount St. Helens and Mount St. Helens is you know waking up they say again and so we may be seeing more growth out of out of the mound of Mount St. Helens. And so we can see how this planet is alive and how God created this thing with such uh, amazing precision and technique. And it all works together and it all feeds into one another and and he says it's good. But then when we get to us, the people that he created, he stops and he says, it's very good. We can look around us and we can see the great creation that we live in and yet, yet we how often do we stop and marvel in amazement at the great creation that God created in us. It's amazing. The intricacy of the design of the human body is something that that if we stopped to try to come up with something even close, we would fall miserably short. The brain is something that cannot even be understood in its entirety all of the systems of the body flow together and help and support other systems of the body, and we've talked about that, about how that's a good image of us as a church, but, but here in, in this room are, are all of these miracles, all of these images of God, all of you who are sitting here in this morning are reflecting the image of your Creator, and it's good. You're good. You are made in the image of God, and that's good. God made us in His image. God created the whole world and the universe, and it was good. God created us as His representation to the world. So the world sees us, you know, um, the, the animals. There are these animals that have no reason to be afraid of humans, and yet when they see us, they run away. I think that's an intrinsic design of their, of their makeup, of how God created them, because we subdue the earth. We rule over the earth, over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals. Still doesn't mean I'm going to get in cage with a lion. Just saying. But God put us here as His, his representation so that, so that when we look around, we see the ruler of the universe in our design. And it's very good. God made us. But God didn't just, just make us in His image and a form. Now, we know that, that when Jesus came, he came as the image of God, as the image of the invisible God. That's a, a passage in the New Testament. But so, so we can see in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, the image of God. But, but there are other attributes about us that, that uh, make us look like God. For instance, God make a, made us to work and to create God is the creator. He created the whole universe, and and within within the confines of the stuff that He's given us, the the actual things we can get our hands on to create with, we cannot create from nothing as God created from nothing, But, but when we can get our hands on something, we can make things. We can use our creativity to create things. We can use our creativity to paint paintings and to make music. God created us to work and to create. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is... Your name and all the earth. Here, the psalmist is writing. This is the, this is a, from the Psalms, and Psalm is a book of songs. And this is the songwriter writing, and he's he's writing and he's marveling at at all of creation and how amazing it is. He said, "Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is Your name and all the earth?" And then he talks about the moon and the stars and the sky, and you know, I see the work of Your fingers and, and putting the creation in place. And then he goes and talks about, "Man, what is mankind? Who are we that You're mindful of us?" What are humans that you care for them? You made them a little lower than the angels and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. God has created us to work and to create and he made us in his image in that way. God made us in his image. There are also other aspects of our body that that are of our makeup that make us like the image of God. For instance, we are not just bodies. We have a soul. And in fact, like uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, but I, I think that's a wrong attribution, but you can go look it up. We are not bodies with a soul. We are souls with a body. Our soul is the eternal part of us, and that's, that's the part that God made, and we're clothed with this body for now. So there are aspects of us that, that are made up of different parts. We're not just a, a body with a brain. We're, we're a body with a soul. And God made us to bring Him glory. This is where it might get a little bit uh, confusing. Isaiah 43, 5 and 7. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So, here we hear Isaiah talking about a thing that's going to happen, and, and the, the children of Israel are spread a, across the nation, and, and God's talking about how He's going to draw them back. And how does He describe everyone uh, who's coming back? He says, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. God made us to bring Him glory. And, and I know that, that kind of seems like a, a heavy word, and we're going to dig into that. Uh, just a little bit in just a minute. But here, for your notes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is from the Westminster Confession written several hundred years ago. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we have, we know, our, our purpose here is to glorify God. Well, what does that mean? Well, God made us with meaning and purpose. No matter how meaningless your life feels right now, whether you feel like you've accomplished a lot or that you have a lot left to accomplish, you need to know that you have great meaning. No matter how purposeless your life might feel right now, you need to know that, that God gave you a great purpose and He has a great plan for your life. We're made in God's image. We're male and female made in God's image. There's, there is a, not a distinction in the Bible that we see that, that man is more in the image of God than, than female. We are all made in God's image. Our worth doesn't come from what we do then, it comes from whose image we're made in. Our worth does not come from what we can accomplish, it comes from whose image we are made in. Our worth is inherent in our design. Because of that, everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. Everyone is of infinite value because of whose image they are made in. Being made in God's image gives us meaning. Being made in God's image gives us depth, gives us purpose. And knowing what God made us for, to bring Him glory, gives us purpose. It's important to understand what we lost so that we can understand what God is redeeming us to, and that's... That's, that's this, this, all of the first weeks of this are building up to the big story of redemption that's coming in the next several weeks, so you want to make sure that you're not missing the next couple of weeks that are coming. But here in the, in the first chapter of Genesis, at the very beginning, we have literally utopia. We have, we have the best possible world we could imagine. It's, everything is perfect. Nothing is wrong. It was perfection. There were no diseases to fight, no cancers to cure, no mental disorders. It was just not there. Nothing was dark and negative. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, hand in hand, ruling over the creation that He had made. Everything was as God had intended it to be. It was perfect. How God made us in the beginning was perfect. Perfect. Back to this glory thing. When we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. That's in your notes. When we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. When we know why we were created, then we know how to live and what we're doing it for. We know how to live and why we're living. When we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. When we don't know our purpose... We find ourselves wandering aimlessly through life, easily distracted by all that this world has to offer. When we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. When we don't know our purpose, then we find ourselves wandering aimlessly through life, distracted by all that this world has to offer. When we don't know why we were created and we don't know how to live, then the only thing we have to live for is our own pleasure. If we don't know why we're created and what it is we were created for, then, then we don't know what it is we're supposed to do. We don't know how we're supposed to go about our life. So we find ourselves constantly chasing all of these different things that don't add up, that don't make sense, that don't come together because we're chasing the wrong things. But when we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. You ever found yourself easily distracted? The adversary would keep us busily engaged in a multitude of trivial things in an effort to keep us distracted from the few things, the few vital things that make all the difference. The adversary would would keep us busily engaged in a multitude of trivial things in an effort to keep us distracted from the few vital things that make all the difference. Just like the woman in the picture, distracted on the phone and drinking a cup of coffee, the most important thing she's doing right now is not talking on the phone and drinking the cup of coffee. The most important thing she is doing is ensuring that her vehicle does not plow over some innocent child. That's the most important thing, right? That, that's what all the outrage is about, about distracted driving. It's not because we're so worried about, you know, them drinking coffee and, and drinking the phone. The fact is that if they get out of control, then somebody's life is probably going to be at danger. That's the most important thing, and yet we find ourselves distracted by all these little things. The same is true for us in the Christian life. We, we have one focus, we have a singular focus, and that's to bring glory to God. And we're going to talk about exactly how we do that. But, but the adversary would seek to, seek to keep us busily engaged in, in a multitude of trivial things. The adversary, our enemy, would seek to put things in front of us. This world will put things in front of us on a regular basis that, that will keep us distracted from the most important thing. When we don't know why we were created, we don't know how to live. And the only thing we know to live for is our own pleasure. If you chase two rabbits, you won't catch either one. It is not possible for us to chase the world and God at the same time. It is not possible for us to fully go after all the pleasures of this life and to fully go after God at the same time. If we chase both of them, we won't catch either one. So We can't be distracted by all the little things of this world because there are a lot of things this world is going to throw our way. We can't be caught up in every self-help wave that rolls on shore. We can't be distracted with every get-rich-scheme that comes our way, every get-rich-scheme known to man. We can't be swayed by the lies of those who would have us believe we can have and deserve all the trappings of this life. We can't believe the lie that this won't hurt me. Because this world doesn't care about us or where we end up. The only, they only care about getting as much out of us as possible before we die. I don't know if you know that. but I just want to harp on that for a minute. If you just let me get up on the soapbox. Um, we have this misconception that, that the world really cares about me and the, the world really wants me to be happy. And if, and if you just have this thing or if you just do this thing or if you just give in to this idea, then, then you're going to really find what happiness is all about. and I, I cannot express to you how much of a lie that truly is. The world doesn't care about you, I can promise. The world cares about getting as much, as, you, as much from you as possible before you die. That's it. As soon as you die, they're on to the next person to get more. And as soon as that person dies, they're on to the next person to get more because they think that getting more is going to be the thing that gives them their worth and their value. The world doesn't care about us being truly happy. In fact, I would argue that the world strives to keep us in a continuous state of unhappiness because when we're happy, we don't need the things that they have to offer. When we're happy, we don't need the self-help books. When we're happy, we don't need the get-rich schemes. When we're happy, we don't need to go after all the trappings of this life. I think the world is trying to keep us uneasy and unhappy, so we're constantly coming back to get more. When we don't know our purpose, we find ourselves wandering aimlessly through life, easily distracted by all the world has to offer. I think I've got a slide out of order here. We must be singularly focused on living a life that brings glory to God. We must be singularly focused on living a life that brings glory to God. But how? How do I live a life That brings glory to God. How can this life that I'm living be something that gives glory to God? seems like a big word and a big concept, a big idea. How can we possibly bring glory to God? Giving God glory means this. It says, to tell those we know of the work He has done in our lives, hearts, and minds every day, giving Him thanks and praise. That gives God glory. Giving God glory means we don't take credit for the work that God's doing in our life. We give God the credit that He deserves. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm constantly experiencing more of God. I'm constantly growing in my walk with God, and so, so I'm thankful for what He is doing. If I stop and I take credit, I have finally figured out how to get close to God, and I can work my way to Him. I'm not giving God glory. I'm giving myself glory. The, the point is, all of the good in our lives, all of these things that God puts in us, all of the good that He, the world that He's created around us for our pleasure, for us to enjoy, all of this is for His glory, It's so that we will live a life that, that gives Him glory. So to tell those around us that, that we've accomplished this, that we did this, that this is, this is my doing is to take the glory away, but if we stop and we just say, look at all this great stuff God has done in my life. Look at this great thing that God has done in changing my heart and, and my mind. That's giving God glory. Obeying what God says to do. Submitting to His ways. Surrender. That's giving God glory. When God tells us to do something, we, just like we talked about in the last couple of weeks, all of the stuff that we've been talking about is building up into this. God has told us all of these things to do, not because He's a mean God, not because He's the God up in the sky with the magnifying glass you know, scorching the ants on the anthill, but because He really cares about us. He wants us to thrive and to, and to live at peace with the world that He created. God has a plan for us, and when we live according to that plan, we, we, we thrive, we, we grow, and, and we can see this in, not just in the Christian world, but in all the world. When the world around us lives according to the design that God put in place from the beginning of time, we see thriving. When we see uh, people going against that, when we see people going in the opposite direction from the plan that He created, the purpose that He created, the tools and the, and the rules that He put in place, when we see people going against that, we see chaos, we see disorder, we see dysfunction, we see death. We see death. God created this world and He created a plan and He created a way for us to live and when we live according to it, we find peace. So one of the ways that we can bring glory to God is by obeying those things that He told us to do, to submit to His ways and to surrender. Here's a definition of worship that I like. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It's the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It's the the quickening of the conscience by His holiness. When When that voice, when that alarm goes off and it says not to do this because it's going away from me, not towards me, that's worship. The nourishment of mind with His truth. When we are filling our minds with His truth, with the truth of His word, with the truth of His promises and His principles, that's worship. The purifying of imagination by His beauty. When we use the creative gifts that God has given us for His glory and we use them to give Him glory, that's worship. The opening of the heart to His love. When we, when we refuse to love like the world loves, who gives and takes away, we love eternally like God loves. We love without condition. That's worship. It's the surrender of our will to his purpose. We have these desires for our life, but when we give that up and say, whatever you want, God, whatever it is you have for me, that's worship. And all of this gathered up in adoration because we cannot fathom a God so amazing. We cannot fathom a God who would do this for us. We cannot fathom a God who who would send his son to die in our place. All of this gathered up in adoration the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. When we, when we completely empty ourselves of ourselves and our selfish pride and our arrogance and our agenda and we pour that out and we just lay, we lay empty before God, we surrender to Him and we adore what He's done. That's worship. This is how we bring glory to God. We bring glory to God by making much out of him. We give glory to God by living out those things that he created us to do. What are those things? Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We give God glory by living out those things he created us to do. What are those things that God created you to do? We're getting to that in just a minute. We give glory to God by living out those things He created us to do. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? We give glory to God by living out those things He created us to do to obey what He says to do and to submit our ways, to surrender to Him. This is giving Him glory. So when God says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, this is what I require of you. We should pay attention. When God is talking and God says, this is what I require, pay attention. Don't just skip over it. What I require of you is to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. This is giving God glory. This is, this is exalting God to the highest place and giving Him the name that is above every name, that His name every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and give glory to our Creator. This is giving God glory. Making much of Jesus and putting ourselves in our rightful place, surrender. See, when we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. When we don't know our purpose, we're going to be constantly fighting against that purpose and chasing after all the things of this world. God created us in His image, and He put us here on this earth to represent Him. God created us in His image, and then He put us here to represent Him to this earth. So here we are, we're sitting in this room, we all, we all, we all look like our Creator, And God put you here for a purpose. God put you here. You're you're here for a reason. Did you know that? You're not just wandering through life aimlessly. You're, You're not just, well, you might be wandering through life aimlessly, but you maybe have not discovered your purpose yet. But you have purpose. You have meaning. You have worth. You have purpose. And it's by living in that purpose and living according to God's design that we find thriving. Humans thrive when we live according to God's purpose. You can look through history and find that over and over again. Humans thrive. So, what do we want to do then? Well, here's, here's what I hope we will do. I hope we'll begin to discover those things that God created you to do. If you don't know where to start, then Micah 6.8 is a great place to start. If you're not sure what it is that God created us to do, then we start within those things that we know for sure He's asked us to do. When, we, when we're not sure what our design is, what our makeup is, how we were created to perform and to function, then, then we start within those things that we know that God put before us, and then once we begin to become comfortable and aware of those things that we know for sure He created us to do, we will start to discover the other things that He built us for. So all of us, everyone in this room, is supposed to be living out Micah 6.8. It's not a request, it's not a suggestion, God said, I require this of you. So we all have this requirement put on our shoulders that we're supposed to be doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, doing justice loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. It is not just the church's responsibility, the gathered, collected church of 6 Eight Church. It's not just our responsibility to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. It is our individual responsibility to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly. Yes, we try to do things that, that give you ideas or set an example or give you a place to do those things, like the food pantry, like fathers in the field, like laundry love, these are tools through which we can do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. But we have to develop in our mindset, in our way of thinking, in our DNA, that doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly has to do with our day-to-day life, not just when we come here. That's why God created us. That's where we should start. But then there are those other things that God created us to do. So this week, if you don't know what those are, I would encourage you to write these, these sources down. The Strengths Finder 2.0 is a test that you can go take and you can just kind of find your strengths. And in the, the, in the book, they give you an idea of, of how to use some of those strengths. There's a free test. You can go find it online. It's called APEST, A-P-E-S-T, Apostles, Prophets, Evangelists, Shepherds, Teachers. You can go take this test online. You can kind of get your, your makeup of who you are And you start to discover who you are, then you can discover what you're supposed to do. There are spiritual gifts tests that you can go take, and you might be able to find some more useful information about what spiritual gifting you've been given. But then once we know how we've been made, once we know how God created us, then we have this individual responsibility to start using those gifts for God's glory. We don't get to hoard them to ourselves. We don't get to just hold it all in and use it to make ourselves look better. We have a responsibility to use that gift for God's glory to tell all of the world about God through this gift that he's given us. It does not mean that everything we do with that gift has to be Christian. It does not mean that everything we do with those gifts has to be pithy, in other words. It doesn't mean that everything that we do with that gift has to fit on a coffee cup. But by using this gift that God inherently designed in our makeup for his glory... When we do these things, we're glorifying God. I want to give you one example, and it's a passion of mine. It's something I've I've hoped for a long time, and I really hope we as a church can start moving in this direction, and that's with the arts. This is from a book called Addicted to Mediocrity. It's by Frankie Schaefer, who is Francis Schaefer's son. If you know who Francis Schaefer is. He says this Christians for many centuries dominated creative expression. They embraced it, enjoyed it, cared for it, and exalted in it as a manifestation of God's gift to men. Listen to that again. Christians, for many centuries, dominated creative expression. They embraced it, enjoyed it, cared for it, and exalted in it as a manifestation of God's gift to men. It's no coincidence that they also dominated the culture in which they lived, that there was a Christian consensus. This is a Google map. That you, can go, you can go look up a bunch of these different Google maps online. But what this map is is a, a density map of, of where the most pictures have been taken in the world. So you can see uh, on, this, on this map all the different places where, where most of the pictures have been taken. And you can kind of see in the United States, you know, out on the West Coast, there's a lot of pictures in, the, in New York. There's actually a fair amount of pictures that have been taken in the Northwest. You can see some yellow there. Down in South America, we see some, some yellow over um, in Asia and Japan, we see some yellow over there, but look where the greatest concentration of yellow is. It's in Europe. What do you think about when you think about Europe? Art, right? You think about all of this art that was created in the high time, in the the time, in the era of the church when the church had the most influence and dominance in its culture. You think about the cathedrals, you think about the sculptures, you think about the Sistine Chapel, and you think about all the paintings and all of the great work that was done to bring glory to God. It was done by people who had been gifted by God to express through their creativity this thing, the way they see the world, the way they look at the world, and they they express it and they did it for God's glory, and the church dominated culture. In fact, we can see so much how the church dominated culture that still today, this is a recent map, this is not a map of pictures that were taken hundreds of years ago, this is a map of pictures that have been taken recently, we can see that still today, when it comes to the arts, the church from that time dominates culture. It's the most photographed place on the planet. It's no coincidence that they also dominated the culture in which they lived that there was a Christian consensus. But here is what has happened. Any group that willingly or unconsciously sidesteps creativity and human expression gives up their effective role in the society in which they live. In Christian terms, their ability to be the salt of that society is greatly diminished. After this time, there there was a period in church history where the church started stepping away from the arts, in fact, walked away from them, and, and started to condemn the arts. They, they, they believed that it, was, that it was sinful, that it was idolatry, that it was something we were not designed to do. And so they started condemning them, and then, and then a few people started to respond, but what response came was the, was the pithy stuff, not the substantive stuff. And so here we are today, we find ourselves living in a world and a culture that is not dominated by Christian consensus. We're living in a culture that is dominated by the earthly way of thinking. We live in a culture where everything has gone the opposite of God, is not going to Him anymore. Don't you think that that's connected? Don't you think that when the church walked away from that thing that God created us and designed us to do, that that's the reason we also started to lose our influence don't you think that when we started living for something different, some man-made idea that had very little to do with God but had to do with other things that, that man brought into the equation, when we started walking away from that, then we lost our influence. But, but if we as a church, if we as the church at 6 Eight Church can start to build into our existence, into our DNA, this creative expression that God designed us all with, then I think we have a chance at influencing the culture that we're surrounded by. I think if we can begin to, to really pursue God and to go after Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and we, and we allow the, the completeness of God to saturate our being, then the expressions of art to come out of this body are going to be something so amazing people will not understand what is happening. They will be drawn into what God is doing here. But it requires us living for God's purpose. And this is just one example. This is just one area of influence. There's so many other areas of influence that we as followers of God can have influence if we make it all about God and not about ourselves. So we're gonna turn now and talk, and then we'll wrap things up. And these are the questions I'd like you to discuss. What steps do you need to take to begin to discover who God created you to be? What ways has God made you creative? I hear a lot of people say, I'm just not creative. Everyone in this room is creative. God has gifted us with creativity because we're made in the image of a creator. We're made in God's image. We are made in the image of a creator, therefore we are all creatives. That does not mean we're painters and musicians, but there is some expression of your life with which the creativity of God can be expressed. What ways has God made you creative? I've seen loggers performing their skill of logging with great creativity as an art. You've seen carpenters and, and the works that they've created and creating some of the, the most artistic houses, the craftsman-style homes. If you walk through them, you can walk through and just see the artistry. It does not just have to be painting. It doesn't have to be just music. There are, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ways with which we can be creative, what ways has God made you creative? And how could you start, what could you start doing to express your God-given creativity? So let's turn and talk about that for eight minutes. Ready, set. So you know what we're supposed to do, that is to, to live according to God's purpose and design for our lives. When, when we know our purpose, we can live with purpose. You know what we're supposed to, to go about this week and discovering that purpose and finding out what those things are, but 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 why? Why should we do that? Here's the why. There's no one else on this planet who can do what God created you specifically to do and the way He created you to do it. No one else. There may be other people with similar strengths and similar talents, but, but there is no one on this planet that can do what God created you to do in the way he created you to do it. As a church, we desperately need everyone, not just a few, but we need everyone doing what God created them to do. We cannot, we cannot stand on the shoulders of a few who have, who have given in to God's ways and God's purpose and hope that that's going to be enough to carry us. We, we all have to get on board with the design that God created us with. We have to, we have to go after that with passion, not obligation, but passion to discover who it is. We, we cannot function with a percentage. We need all. As we've said before, we're not a cruise ship, we're a battleship. But we're also not a locomotive. There aren't a few trains out in front pulling hundreds and hundreds of cars behind. It's more like a team of horses. And God has put a few of us together here and a few of us together there, and He's created us with this idea that, that when we're all pulling together, when we're all going in the direction God wants us to be going, then, then we're going to get really far and we're going to have a lot of influence, a lot of purpose. Maybe you're here and you feel like something's missing, and I would venture to guess that that's just because we're not living up to God's design. So maybe the thing that you need to do this morning is just to, to surrender to God's will and to give that up to Him and to, to lay that down and say, What is it you have for me? I'll start with Micah 6 8, but what did you create me to do? To discover that. With the hope for Hazeldale and Vancouver. And the half a million people that live here in Clark County is sitting in this room and in rooms like it across the city. The question is will we respond to the call to live for the purpose God created us for, or will we chase all the empty promises of this world? I have decided to pursue Christ. What about you? Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you've given to us. I thank you for this world that's around us filled with beauty and amazingness, that there's so much around us that we cannot fathom and understand and we can't even use science to explain yet, and yet there is a God who created it all with purpose and design. I thank you that you created us in your image and that we have dignity, that we have worth because we're created in your image. I thank you for all of these wonderful things. But Father, I pray for us this morning gathered together that you would put on us a burden and a passion and a desire to live out that purpose, to live out that thing you created us to do for your glory, for your kingdom's purposes, that we wouldn't sit on those things any longer, that we would stand up and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not turning back. I've decided to go after him with all of my heart. The world cannot put anything in front of me that is going to be more enticing than what God has designed me for. I'm going after it. No turning back. No turning back. Father, put that burden on our hearts, put that burden on our souls, and put the passion in our hearts and our minds and our lives to go after it with our whole mind, our whole strength, our whole being. And in doing this, by surrendering to you with a heart of adoration, we worship you. In Jesus' name.